It's very difficult in Russia to get genuine opinion polls. If I call you up on a landline and say, what do you think of Comrade Putin? You're not going to tell me. If there were a free press in China when this pandemic first emerged in Wuhan, you know, maybe the outcome would have been different. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Media Jungle video podcast. I'm your host, Alex Regeer. We're back for a new season. We'll be coming to you every week to break down the business behind the news industry, technology, and the creator economy. In this week's episode, we're joined by Joel Simon and Robert Mahoney, two guys who have been studying the censorship evolution over the pandemic and for years defending press freedom as the directors of the Committee to Protect Journalists. Their new book is called The Infodemic, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and Less Free. We're gonna get into how this has played out in the US, how it's played out in Russia and Ukraine, and how it's played out in China. But first, censorship has changed. It used to be the government scaring you into silence. Now there's social media platforms, troll farms, bots, fake news, shadow banning. Nowadays, censorship is noise, screaming and yelling in every direction. Steve Bannon calls it flooding the zone with shit. So even if you find the real news, it's kind of messy. Joel, Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so great thank to be, you. So great to be with you. Yeah. Russia, their propaganda machine is at full throttle. We're seeing what information control is in this era. What do you think about what's what's happened with Russia since the invasion? And now it looks like the polls, at least, are showing that Putin's approvals ratings are up. I don't know if that's real or not. For me, it's very hard to understand what's really going on. Russians most younger ones that have access to uh, Telegram and other channels knew this was going on. But the, the bulk of the Russian population, which is a demographic in, uh, middle-aged and older, get their news from television. And television presented everything as hunky-dory uh, in Russia during the pandemic, just as it's trying to do through Ukraine. So that was a classic... Um, uh, dictator's kind of way of doing it, bring in repressive legislation, churn out propaganda, and crack down on anyone who tells a different story from the one that you want out there. Maybe you guys could talk a little bit, or Joel, about the the new kind of ways the, the or, or mechanisms they're using to suppress ideas or, or cause confusion. Let me first say this is typical. Let's let's face it, you know, democracies were in disarray. The United States was in disarray. Europe was in disarray. You know, they were really polarized and divided. China, you know, was ascendant in a certain way because they managed to control COVID, even though they did it in very draconian ways, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So it's not impossible that Putin, you know, felt very emboldened in this sort of, you know, as we emerge from the pandemic or the most acute phase, you know, looking at what, you know, feeling that he was more in control domestically and that the West was in disarray. And he'd obviously wanted to go into Ukraine for a long time, but maybe he calculated that this was the right moment uh, because of the, the sort of post-pandemic reality, I wouldn't say post, but, you know, whatever phase of the pandemic we're in. Um, and, you know, we may see other surprises like this because, it, you know, Rob and I judge that like many authoritarians feel very empowered 
by the way you know things played out during the pandemic and they perceive you know the leading democracies as very as very as weakened and more divided is there anything that was like the most kind of surprising thing or alarming thing about uh that that's happening right now with now that they've now now with the war well i think that you know it's it's the cynical exploitation of people's health which gets me and you talked about putin's uh, approval ratings they were they were, they were in the toilet before the pandemic right and during the pandemic it was very it's very difficult in russia to get um genuine opinion polls. If I call you up on a landline and say, what do you think of Comrade Putin? You're not going to tell me. It was clear that people were losing uh, trust in him. And he sees the way that the United States is bungling the response to COVID. Putin built, uh, built a narrative that Russia was winning. And when it suited him, he would say, uh, for example, if uh, Viktor Navalny, the, the, uh, the, the dissident, wanted to have a, 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 a hold a rally or a demonstration, no, you can't gather because of COVID restrictions. But at the same time, he got 80,000 people put it into a football stadium and held a rally to um, Lord Russia's response and the rollout of the first vaccine, the Sputnik V vaccine. So, you know... Uh, he was able to use um, the the, the uh, disarray in the West to bolster uh, what he what what he was uh, you know what he was doing as something that uh, that uh, showed how good the Russian system was, and rolling on that, he was able then to uh, reach these great heights in Ukraine of popularity by again building a narrative that everybody is is uh, out to get Russia and we. Uh, have to stand strong. And so Putin has come out of this pandemic and this misadventure in, in um, Ukraine in his terms as more popular. Whether he's stronger is a different matter. It's a sad moment for journalism over there. Oh, yeah. We've spent uh, you know years fighting for the rights of uh, Russian journalists when they were under siege and making so many you know trips to uh, Russia to support them and engage with the government and all the journalists we defended uh, over years and years are are, are are in exile now. They've had to leave. So that, that space uh, that was so limited um, uh, already is now, has now been annihilated. You know, on the other hand, it's interesting what's happening in, in Ukraine where there was a strong, but, you know, small and somewhat marginal, you know, independent media um, and, you know, the, the information environment in Ukraine is very much, you know, kind of aligned with the, with the war effort. But, it's, but there's, you know, the kind of it's interesting to see how agile um, these, these journalists are. And they're also doing an amazing job. Ukrainian, you know, let's, let's also recognize we're seeing a lot of reporting out of Ukraine from the international media. That is all made possible by Ukrainian journalists. I mean, you need a team of Ukrainian journalists if you're an international reporting crew to move around, to function, to know the landscape. And, and, and some have been killed uh, uh, doing this work. So, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's certainly a difficult and dangerous and dynamic information environment in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, but we've also seen some, some, some positive and inspiring 
uh, things, things happening there and uh, journalists doing amazing work. Now we're sort of seeing kind of a, an alignment with Ukraine and Russia uh, and uh, China is really seems to have taken a lot uh, advantage of the new COVID surge that they're apparently having over there with Shanghai getting shut down. And uh, how do you think this is this up like them taking two years of continuously controlling a lot of the communication? How is that? going to affect journalism in China and freedom of press in China moving forward? The freedom of the press in China is, is, is disappearing before our eyes. Um, the, the last real free press hub in Asia uh, that actually could report on what was going on inside mainland China was Hong Kong. And over the last two years or so, you've seen the slow strangulation of the free press in Hong Kong. And that, that's a sign of what's going on inside China. The fact that there is no one publicly who dares uh, criticize or bring up for debate China's approach to the whole pandemic, which is zero COVID. In other words, sealing down whole neighborhoods or whole cities and uh, trying to prevent the movement of people. Uh, in order to hold the social spread of the disease. No one can question that. So the Chinese uh, authorities have locked down Shanghai. That's 25 million people in one city, which is the economic and financial hub of China. And anyone that, 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 that uh, tries to question that publicly is shut down. They're either arrested or their, their social media accounts uh, uh, closed down so that their voices are silenced. Does that affect the whole world just yeah. by the fact of them proving and testing and using all these methodologies to or, or new technologies and different ways of controlling human psychology? Is that something that will like sort of affect us and other other countries? I mean, I think so, but you could also see it much more practically, which is that, you know, information is a, is a global, we live in this sort of global information system, right? So when China suppresses information about the origins of the disease and, the, you know, or suppresses information about whether it's airborne or not, you know, that affects the, the whole trajectory of the pandemic. Um, you know, if there were a free press in China, when this pandemic first emerged in Wuhan, you know, maybe the outcome would have been different because, you know, people knew about this strange, you know, that people were getting sick and there was, you know, this disease that was spreading and we, you had, a, you know, a doc, medical professionals were sounding the alarm and the Chinese government re response was to suppress all of this information and to control it. And uh, and then yes, it's true. When they once they realized that there was a public health threat, they imposed like the full authority of the state and to mobilize the society in ways that you know would have been impossible in a in a democratic uh, society. Uh, but but we but we have to recognize that you know the, the the trajectory of the pandemic was set by Chinese censorship. And the other thing we need to understand is that around the world, according to a study carried out by Human Rights Watch. 83 countries suppressed essential rights, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, under the guise of, of protecting public health during the pandemic. Uh, 
So we saw this, Rob and I call it the COVID crackdown. We saw this wave of censorship and information control, you know, that swept the world that, and changed the, the, changed the kind of, uh, you know, global political structures and power relationships in ways that are fairly significant and that we're just becoming aware of because we live in the information age. And if you can set the narrative and you can control and manage information, then you have power. And uh, we saw that play out during the pandemic in, in very negative ways, in ways that um, uh, compromised public health rather than affirming it, and in ways that empowered you know, autocratic and repressive regimes and weakened uh, democratic governments around the world. Chinese scientists were aware of, um, slowly, they, they gained knowledge of what was happening in Wuhan in the, towards the end of uh, 2019. And we're afraid to say so publicly. We're, we're the very opposite of what scientists do, which is to publish results to let people know what's going on. If we and the rest of the world had had that knowledge in November, December, January, February, we would have had some kind of a jumpstart on this, the, the pandemic. But it was suppressed. It was suppressed by the Chinese state that put its full weight into crushing anyone that came out with that, that information. And so that policy has gained currency, if you like, uh, because other, other countries that wanted, wanted to keep control of the narrative did the same thing. We saw it, it with Iran, which it then spread from China to Iran and then and on to Egypt and throughout the Middle East. And all those countries fared badly in terms of their COVID rates, of uh, death rates and infection. And then to answer your other question, the Chinese in, uh, also introduced mass surveillance. They already had a great surveillance day, but even more because surveillance technology enables you to exercise social control. You can influence people's behavior. You can restrict it. And those Chinese companies that make this stuff, facial recognition scanners, temperature scanners, uh, you know, CCTV camera, they sell this stuff abroad. They're now selling it to countries well, it's in Africa or other parts of Asia and Latin America. And so I think that one of the um, one of the outcomes of this pandemic is going to be uh, an increase in biomedical surveillance and in just general surveillance. Because now in China, if you're infected, the, the government has your DNA, it has all your biometrics, and it can follow you anywhere. It can prevent you from traveling, it can prevent you from buying a train ticket or a plane ticket, and it can quarantine you. It has all the surveillance equipment it needs to keep you in, in, in your home. It puts an electronic lock on your door. And if you open your door, it immediately sets off a, a digital alarm to say that you're breaking quarantine if you've been put in quarantine. Um, and if you step outside, facial recognition software will grab you immediately. So you've got a, an incredible surveillance state that is enabled by a very sophisticated propaganda policy and very sophisticated uh, surveillance equipment and technology. Wow. Yeah, so they have a case study for implementing this in other places. What what can the fight the people who want to fight for f press freedom and uh, freedom of speech and uh, what can we do? This is an information environment in which political leaders. Can, can are able to exploit in ways that uh, undermine, uh, you know, uh, public trust, but uh, perpetuate power. 
So I think if you're a concerned citizen, you need you need to find what we need to find a way to break that cycle. And that means, you know, if you live in a democratic country and you have the opportunity to participate, it means ensuring that, you know, we have um, leaders who are, who act in a responsible manner. And instead of using these information, these powerful new information tools to divide and polarize us, regardless of the consequences for our society and our health and anything else, you know, try and find ways to um, uh, have a, a, a public square, a public dialogue, a public debate, a political debate that is healthy and you know where where, di- where differences are are recognized and engaged with, but not exploited. So it's not there's no magic bullet here, but uh, I do think the the path to uh, a better future is 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 fairly clear in the sense that you know our political our political leadership uh, in so many countries failed us during the pandemic. We need we need to hold we need to use the tools that are available to us to hold uh, those leaders accountable, and we need to make sure that future leaders um, uh, use these technologies to manage and ensure a healthier uh, public discourse. What is an infodemic and uh, how are we as Americans less free? Look, an infodemic was a term that was coined to describe the deluge of information, the misinformation, the confusion, the lies that accompanied the, the, the pandemic. And the basic idea of an infodemic is that governments are exploiting this opportunity, this moment of confusion to um, undermine and sabotage public understanding in ways that advance their own political um, agenda. So that's what happened. It happened in the United States, certainly under Trump. It happened in nearly almost nearly every country around the world. And, you know, the way in which it makes us less free is a little bit more, it's, a, it's sometimes a little bit uh, counterintuitive. In the book, we talk about positive and negative liberty. And a lot of people think of freedom in terms of negative liberty. That's like the freedom from government constraint, the fact that, you know, we, we had to wear masks or stay home. Those were curbs on our freedom. But we also talk about positive liberty, and that's the ability that people have to participate in the political process in ways that allow them to hold their governments accountable. And when you are subsumed in lies and half-truths, and if you are misled, then your ability to participate in the democratic process is compromised. And that's the way in which so many people around the world, their freedom was compromised. It wasn't only about mask wearing. It's about the ability that people, that citizens have to have the information they need to fully participate politically. In what ways did the Trump administration or the U.S. government confuse the what's happening? There are many ways, but one of the things is to just to sow confusion. I mean, you want people to take uh, measures to protect their health and the health of the people around them during a pandemic. You cannot, you cannot compel people to do things, especially in the United States, for very long. Therefore, you need to co-opt them. You need to nudge them in their behaviors. And for that, you need trust. If the government says I should wear a mask in order to protect myself, I, I have to have trust 
in the government. That trust was totally lacking. And uh, mask wearing became politicized because we couldn't get at the beginning of the pandemic. You'll remember how confusing it was. We couldn't get real information on which to base uh, informed decisions. And Trump and those in the administration capitalized on this and just sowed confusion. And we had a, uh, a politicization of a public health crisis, which left us all sicker. Just, I mean, the figures tell the story. Look how many Americans have died and how many of those deaths were needless. How did the, the, the media uh, play a role in this? Were they also complicit to kind of uh, sowing confusion? Well, the media, especially the, the national media, many of them tried to do a, a decent job at reporting. But if you don't have um, access to uh, the, the right experts and you're not getting uh, accurate information from the government, the media is left to uh, work it out on its own. You remember that press conference where Deborah Brooks, the, um, the advisor, is sitting saying nothing while Trump is telling us that we maybe have bleach and sunlight. I mean, you know, we, we had to make sense of that. So the sense-making institutions, whether it's the CDC, whether it's the media, whatever it is, weren't working properly. And it sowed confusion and it allowed for the politicization of basically a public health crisis. And we paid the price. Another way to think about it and the way that we sort of describe it in the book is we profile this uh, this uh, former police officer who now teaches at a university in Arizona named Charles Loftus and describe his process. He's a Trump supporter and he you know got COVID and took an anti-malarial drug about how he tries to kind of navigate within this media environment. He's like he's someone who genuinely wants to understand what's happening around him and is a pretty sophisticated. Uh, news consumer. But, you know, people don't understand that people consume news not necessarily as rational individuals, but as part of communities. So, you know, the people around them and the way they think and their political orientation really informs our understanding. So what politicians did, and notably Trump, and but not just Trump, certainly, and not just in this country, was recognizing the way in which people... Uh, you know, consume information and whether and how it reflects their 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 political beliefs exploited that with these lies and created a kind of self-reinforcing information environment in which whole people were whole groups of people were completely alienated and disconnected from the kind of science and from the experts. And uh, this was a strategy that was very effective politically in this country, to be, to, if we're frank, and was actually sort of weaponized and, and, and modified in many other countries around the world. How does this play into a, a lot of people we, we know from a lot of studies that people trust local news more than any type of news? And we also have an, uh, a crisis in local news where they're shutting down everywhere you look. We have news deserts, what they call places that do not have any local news or very little. How did that play out in, in uh, this whole problem? We've got uh, whole communities without any news outlets at all. And then in other uh, you, where you have the remnants of a news outlet, they're called ghost papers. They've basically been gutted and there's very little reporting. So if you were uh, trying to work out what was going on as an ordinary citizen, you had 
national media, some of which was very politicized and, and you, it was viewed as pro-Trump or anti-Trump, very few actually down the middle. But you, your local paper may not have been there. Your local radio station may not have been there. And that's where in those, in those communities where there was a functioning local news uh, outlet, they were able to give down the middle kind of news about, you know, uh, mask wearing or where you could um, where you could get vaccines when they came in. Uh, basically actionable information, the kind of stuff that people want coming from people that lived in their community. And there was this element of trust, because in the end, what we show in the book is that without trust, you cannot uh, effectively handle a pandemic. And local news organizations build that trust uh, over years because the reporters come from the community that where the readers are. You're all in that together. And um, this, uh, this pandemic showed up exactly what is happening. We look at those, uh, we look at, we tell a story of a, of, of a newspaper just across the border in Tijuana, Mexico, which did uh, do uh, really great reporting, which which uh, went against the official narrative of how bad the pandemic was and how many people were dying. They sent people to the morgue to count bodies. They sent people out into the streets to build a counter-narrative to the official one. In many thousands of U.S. communities, that kind of work just isn't being done, and people end up doing their own research. You know, how many people became expert virologists thanks to Google during this pandemic? If you're in this space, you recognize that, you know, these are private companies and they're not constrained by, uh, you know, the First Amendment. We don't actually want the government in there, you know, dictating uh, what the platforms can and can't, you know, how they have to moderate their, their content. But the, the reality is they are way too powerful. They're extraordinarily powerful and a lot of information circulating on these platforms is highly damaging to public health or and democracy and so you know there's a kind of expectation that they'll intervene in some ways to manage the information uh in a responsible way the problem is that the platforms are completely reactive you know they they, they can, nobody understands how their policies work they're not transparent uh, they can't articulate and explain how they make decisions. They, 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 they seem to respond to public pressure. You know, one day they have one uh, um, framework, another day they have another. They, they are inconsistent in their application of human rights principles. They have different standards from one country to another. It's all a big mess. So, I mean, the feeling that people have... Um, that the platforms, uh, you know, are are moderating content. I think, in terms of, you know, their, what they should, you know, their 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 sort of responsibility that they have, they should be moderating this this content in a more effective way. The problem is that they're just doing a, a lousy job, and this really, you know, had an impact uh, during the pandemic. I mean, you're in an interesting place right now, as as big advocates for freedom of the press and freedom of speech, and. Uh, sort of saying we should suppress some views. I don't think we're saying that. I think what we're saying is that platforms have a social obliga obligation to act in a responsible manner because they're powerful. But we're not saying specifically, you know, this is exactly how they should do it. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think that's really our argument. Well, I uh, commend both of you so much for doing this important work and uh, 
trying to figure out what happened. I think you're really like touching on something that a lot of people are feeling, which is just like what just happened over well, yeah. the past two years. Yeah. Like it's just been a whirlwind of information and uh, confusion that we may not have had, uh, you know, in years past. Well, thank you. I mean, this was this was a, a great conversation, and uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, there's some there's some actionable ideas uh, in the mix here, uh, because you're right. We're this is a very confusing moment, and uh, uh, I think everyone everyone feels uh, somewhat overwhelmed. No, no question. Well, I certainly feel overwhelmed by it all, and I'm I'm very I'm very glad that we had this opportunity to talk. And I would just say to people, don't lose heart. You know, this may be a once in a century uh, occurrence, but there is a way out of this. And I hope that by reading this book, although we don't come up with great solutions, but pointing out the problems, maybe people who are more intelligent than I am can think of some ways that we can dig our way out of this mess. Thank you so much. If you want to check out the book, the book is Infodemic, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and less free. You can find it Amazon everywhere. You can find uh, Robert Mahoney and Joel Simon on Twitter. Thanks for watching. See you next week. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. By the way, we also are a video podcast where you can see extra memes, charts, visuals about the segments. So you can find that on YouTube or subscribe to our Substack newsletter for exclusive updates. And thank you so much for listening. See you next week.